as Brother Richard and Brother Tim have done an incredible job, as the Lord has used them over the last couple of messages in bringing us through chapter 9. I sort of feel like the uh, sort of an attorney of sorts making a closing argument of, among of a team of attorneys that a couple have already made their cases and made their points and now one last final argument that Paul is making here about God's work among his people in light of salvation. Uh, I hope I don't mess it up. I hope I don't uh, ruin it. They've uh, have guided us through the doctrine of the sovereignty of God uh, very delicately, but very accurately. Uh, I've been encouraged uh, in, in the way and the spirit in which it has been provided for us because both of these men so far have uh, been true to the Word of God. That, that's, our, that's where we find our security. That's where we find our confidence when it comes to preaching, studying, and living out the Word of God is allowing the Spirit who gave it to us to apply it, to live it out through us, and to glorify God through it. So as you turn with me to the book of Romans, uh, we're going to begin towards the end of chapter 9 and work our way, Lord willing, through chapter 10 as we consider this, again, this topic of salvation. Chapter 9, verse 30, follow along as I read. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We'll pause there and ask God for help. Our gracious Father, we are thankful that we are not left here to simply talk about the issues of the day or to try to figure out something creative to do or to entertain ourselves for just a moment. But Lord, we are here because you have provided a revelation of you. You've provided for us and have preserved over the centuries a word, a revelation, a letter that we might not only know who you are, but see the awfulness of who we are and have provided for us the wonderful solution in Jesus Christ. We have this because your Holy Spirit has done so, and we pray, Lord, now that this same Holy Spirit, the one, the one who has opened our eyes and opened our ears, Lord, we pray that he would teach us today. May we not be left to what I think or to what we would like to hear, but Lord, may we 
truly humble ourselves so that your word might enter in and take root and produce fruit. We pray, Lord, that should there be someone who's listening to this message today that doesn't know you in a personal way, may this be the opportunity that as the word is planted inside their soul, that it would produce faith, faith that would believe, faith that would that produce uh, a dependence upon you and, a, uh, and a, a repentance from their sinfulness and a running away from who they are and what they can accomplish and completely rest in the wonderful work of Jesus Christ as their Savior. We just pray, Lord, that you would accomplish what you will through the preaching of your word today, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may have sit through this series of messages, or perhaps you sit through a number of messages and wonder, what, what's the point? Uh, what we're talking about and what we have been discussing, particularly through the book of Romans, isn't something that most of us are going to listen to on the radio or any other means of listening to music. Most of the songs that we listen to really don't deal with this, perhaps. The te television programs or the movies that we're entertained with probably do not deal with individuals who are working themselves out through a spiritual dilemma and looking for the truth of the scriptures. There's really not anything that you're going to find on CNN or Fox News or any of the stuff in between that's really going to present that the real problem of mankind rests in what we find in God's Word. So you may be scratching your head saying, why do we even bother? Why do we spend so much time considering whether or not God is sovereign over the salvation of people? Why do we spend so much time wondering what, what is it about this righteousness that is such a big deal? Well, I want you to turn with me back to Romans chapter 1 just to get a sense of why Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose to write a letter to these Christians who lived in Rome 2,000 years ago. As we've been reminded that the, the key idea can be found in verse 16 of chapter 1. Let's begin there. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, or to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There you have it. Why do we spend so much time worrying about this? Why do we spend so much time studying? Why do we spend so much time giving attention to what Paul is writing to these people 2,000 years ago? Well, it's because he possessed something and had become a steward of something called the gospel. Good news. It was a message that brought hope and peace and joy and life. And in that was revealed the righteousness of God. As opposed to 
the wrath of God that was going to be revealed in the unrighteousness that exists in the world in which we know. Hopefully that's not an oversimplification, but hopefully it's not a complete melodramatic presentation of something that is so necessary for us to understand in the world in which we live. We have been studying for nearly nine chapters in a very high-level way. We, we could have lowered the plow so many different times to, to dig deeper into what this letter has to say about God and about His love for His people and about His work of salvation. But we spent this much time considering the fact that we live in a sinful world and that God's wrath is resting and is waiting to be poured out on it. And that even though God called out a particular group of people through this man called Abraham, that their works of righteousness, according to the flesh, could not save them. And that simply because those who didn't have the law of God wasn't completely hopeless either. But that either way, that justification comes through this man called Jesus Christ, who is made like a man, came in the form of a servant, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And that we have peace with this God who is going to pour out His wrath on us through what Jesus Christ did for us. Which poses a problem for us because we look at ourselves and we say, how can that be? Because I'm sinful. I look and I'm frustrated. Even when I try to do right, I'm frustrated. But I have to, as Paul puts it, I have to identify us. I have to see myself in Christ. I'm no longer me. I'm in Christ. But I still struggle. So how can I deal with this struggle, this frustration that I have as a believer in Christ? Well, he answers that too because he reminds us that even though we struggle, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We've been adopted by the Spirit of God into a family that we don't normally belong to. Naturally, we don't belong there. But we have been made sons and daughters of God. Now, how did we get this way? Because we're not Jewish, most of us here. What about those Jews? Well, Paul goes into the discourse that we've been studying for the past few messages from Romans chapter 9. But even within that group that God chose and was willing to, 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 to seek out for salvation, was rejected. Why? Because of His sovereign purpose. That was His will. So when we come to verse 30 of chapter 9, well, what shall we say? <laughs> What's the point? Where, uh, where are we at now, Paul? Well, he makes a summarization. Basic two points. Well, one, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, well, they got it. Now, obviously, he's not talking about all Gentiles. He's not talking about some universal scope of salvation. He's talking about Gentiles in relation to this group of people that we know as the Jews. He says the Jews who weren't pursuing righteousness by trying to live out the law that they never received directly, they, they've attained it. But the Israel 
who pursued the law, the ones who were given the law through Moses and had been given all of the, the ways in which they were to worship properly and the way their civilization should be run, the ones who were given that, the ones who pursued the law that way, they did not succeed in reaching the law, which begs the question, well, why not? As we've seen a number of times before in this book already, Paul makes it really clear because they did not pursue it by faith. They were pursuing it as if it were based on works. Now this word pursue is an athletic term. I'm not sure that many people are going to be referring to this Greek term today when the Daytona 500 begins. And people are pursuing uh, you know, the checkered flag. Or if you're going to be watching a particular sport today and be thinking about this, but this is what Paul had in mind, that this effort, this pursuit of winning, it's the same term that, interestingly enough, is used of those who were pursuing the enemy in order to persecute them. Of one of notable rank would be the Apostle Paul, that before he was converted, was very diligent in his pursuit of other Christians so that he might persecute them and, and, and squash this whole movement called the way out of existence. But Paul says, he uses this term pursuit in verses 30 and 31, both of the Gentiles who didn't pursue, they, they had no effort in this, but Israel, they, they were trying really hard. But he reminds them, the reason why they didn't, they didn't obtain righteousness that way is because they didn't pursue it by faith. We look back again in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. What does Paul say? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not because he strove after God, but because he believed. To believe in faith comes from the same root word in the Greek language. So one is a noun, one is a verb form of this same idea. So when you see believe and when you see faith, it's the same idea. But it's not only that they pursued it as if they were in some athletic competition to, to obtain this righteousness, they also had a zeal. And zeal is a wonderful thing, isn't it? To see someone excited, we have recently, over the last uh, couple of months at work, we have hired people, and uh, if you uh, were interested, I, I'm not going to make a commercial about whether or not you want to go into my industry and uh, have a job, but we're still hiring, by the way, in case you're interested. Uh, but anyway, it's interesting to be around people that I have managed for three or four years. Pretty much my team has not had much turnover in the last three or four years. And to see them come into work every day, do the same thing over and over again, go through the same ordeals, have them complain about the same old stuff, see them do the same old job. Granted, they do it well because they have a great manager. But they do it in such a way where it's just, you know, it's just the same old thing. But to walk into a classroom with these people who are wide-eyed and they have just amazed themselves because they can actually pass a test to, to which they can correctly identify at least 75 different airport codes. And for those of you who don't fly, you might not think that's a big deal. But if you do fly and you look at your baggage tag, uh, wait a minute, I thought my 
I thought my bag was going somewhere, but they got three letters that have absolutely nothing to do with airport. But to see their anticipation and to see their excitement about getting into this, I mean, because they're learning something and it's a lot. To do the job that they do, it, it requires a lot of knowledge. It requires a lot of ability. And there's an excitement there. There's a zeal that they have. They, they want to pursue it. They want to be the best. Now, once they get out on the sales floor with everybody else, they, they become just as apathetic as everybody else is. But right now, they're in a classroom secluded from all of that. The Jewish people had a zeal because they had something that no one else had. And if you consider that the people that Paul was addressing probably more precisely than not, if you were in a Christian growth group, not only today, but over the past several weeks when we've been learning about this rebellious people who God had been warning and warning and warning and warning. But they continued to rebel and rebel and rebel and rebel. That he finally had enough, as we learned today, and they were taken into exile. And when they came back from exile, some 70 years later, there were groups of these people that were like, we don't want this to happen again. They became very zealous. There were scribes that would make sure that they not only preserved what they had from the Word of God, but they continued to make copies of it so they would continue to have it over and over again. And this group of people became known in Jesus' day and close related to the Pharisees, the ones who had gone overboard not only were they copying and making sure that they were preserving the law of Moses in the historical books, but they would add on to them because they wanted to make sure that they, they kept it really closely. They were very zealous. And Paul was indeed one of these individuals. Because he considered himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was very proud of the fact that he was making sure to keep the law of God But the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's not in our zeal to obey. And we'll see more of that later. But these individuals who were so zealous in their pursuit of God's righteousness, not according to, the, to their faith, but according to their flesh, also stumbled. What did they stumble over? Now this is a very interesting picture that's not new with Paul. He's referring back to Isaiah. As a matter of fact, a couple of different passages in Isaiah. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 33, Behold, speak, God is speaking here, Behold, I am laying in Zion, in Jerusalem, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. But notice the next phrase. And whoever believes in him... <laughs> It didn't say whoever believes in it. It identifies who the stone is, this place there in the way. But also notice what this stone provides. He's already labeled it a stone of stumbling, so we might think, oh, well, that's a negative thing. Well, no, to those who believe, that person will not be put to shame.
So what God has placed in front of His people is they were running so quickly to accumulate righteousness and obeying the law, they didn't realize there was going to be a, a rock there. And they stumbled over it. It was a fence to them because it kept them from going where they wanted to go. However, the rock that was placed in their way that they stumbled over was the very rock that they should have by faith been placing their trust in so that they would not find shame. You say, well, how could they accumulate any righteousness by just stopping their pursuit and resting in the rock? Bingo! Their efforts were not getting them anywhere anyway. And the rock was there to stop them. The cross of Jesus Christ, which is identified as that which is offensive to people today in their pursuit of righteousness, is the very thing that brings salvation to us today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, that would be those who continue their pursuit of righteousness according to the law. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Oops, there we go. We, it's almost like we're going back in Romans chapter 9 now. There was a rock that was intended to make them stumble in their pursuit. But this stumbling stone, Jesus Christ, became the cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? The cornerstone of our faith. The cornerstone of the church. That's why Paul says we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. So why is the cross so offensive? Why is it such an offense? Well, other than the obvious that it keeps you from believing that your pursuit of righteousness according to of trying to follow the law is pointless and you can't do it and you have to humble yourself before God because you can't do it yourself. It's ugly. It reminds us that we need righteousness. The, the, the cross for many has just simply become uh, a great injustice at the hands of a political power. If there's anyone in this world much that believes that Jesus Christ even existed and was crucified on the cross, the vast majority of them are believing that he was a victim. That the cross is an ugly, just an ugly reminder that we are just murderous people, that we're just wicked people, and that we can go to all stints to, to crucify, to, to bring somebody to death by crucifying them. But they don't understand they don't understand that there is sin. Well, actually, I believe that there has been days past where they did understand that. And in order for them to feel better about themselves, you get rid of the cross. You say, well, do you, can you, do you, is that just your opinion? Do you think? Well, if you go to many mainline denominations today and look just through their hymnal and realize that in their hymnals, they've taken a lot songs and hymns that deal with what? The blood of Christ. 
They, they, again, they dismissed the fact that the death of Jesus Christ was intentional by God. They dismissed the fact that there was a need for a divine Savior to give His perfect, sinless life so that those of us who are sinners, which includes all of us, would have salvation. See, there's coming a day which, uh, like a recent Midwestern woman, stubbed her toe, developed a blood clot in her toe, and unfortunate for her, that blood clot was released from that part of her body and went to her brain and it killed her. Stubbing her toe. Now that might not be the most likely way to go in to eternity, but it's a reminder that regardless of whether it's common or not, we're all subject to death. I love the way Brother Tim reminds us of this from time to time, and I'm still looking, listening for the right funeral for, for that to actually come in place. You know, we're all here just to remind us we're all a bunch of sinners here, and this is one sinner right here that's proven it for everybody. Because that's where we're all headed. We don't like to think about that, and we certainly don't want to think that the fact that we're going to die has anything to do with our sin. The people who don't like the cross, as Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, which is foolishness to the Gentiles. It's a folly to them because it's not rational. But yet, these are the same individuals in many cases who don't believe in objective truth. They believe everything is relative. The cross reminds us that we're sinners. We're bad. Pastor Taylor was using his introduction this morning from the curriculum, the book that has deceived so many people in the way we think, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, guess what? That's based on a false premise to begin with because there's no good people. But we don't like to hear that. And so in our process of getting rid of that, we also have to get rid of the cross. It's a stumbling block. And to the Jews, it was a stumbling block because it was getting in their way of obtaining righteousness in their own pursuits. But Paul gives us a great word of information here. Not only were they running away from it and they, could not, they, they didn't know it, they were doing it in ignorance. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end. Now that can have many different connotations. And depending on what scholar or commentary you may be reading or following after, they may focus on any particular one. But just I, I came across one commentator that kind of put things, generally speaking, looked at a lot of different traits here. First of all, he was the end of the law. He was the final cause of it. He was the end or mark and scope at which they all aimed. In other words, everything that the, the law was intended to point towards, it was all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the end. He completed it. Every type of the law. And what I mean, what I mean by type is that when you look at the law and when you study the, the, the Pentateuch and when you particularly look at the Mosaic law, 
whether it be the forms of worship, the way they were constructing the tabernacle, the ways that they were doing their, each piece of furniture that was within the tabernacle, all of these things were pointing to something much bigger than just a piece of furniture or a place in which they were worshiping. All of these things were pointing towards the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, when he came, he fulfilled every type. Everything that the law was pointing towards, it was all fulfilled in him. He was the terminus of it, to whom it was to reach and beyond whom it was not to go. He was the fulfilling end of it. Everything in it had its accomplishment in him. Everything that the law required, Jesus Christ did. Jesus, while he was tempted in all points like we were, did not sin. His obedience to the Father was 100% perfect. There's no curve on the grading scale. There was no, well, you came from heaven, so you're a little bit better than everybody else, so it doesn't really matter. No, Jesus Christ fulfilled everything according to the law. And lastly, he put an end to it. He disannulled it because of its weakness and its unprofitableness. Now, you can tell that's not my word. That's another commentary reading. But you get the point. There is no profit. As the Jews continued their pursuit, they found no profit because it led them nowhere because they weren't able to do it. It goes on in chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will ascend or descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? It says the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Now we need to go back. And I worship God, it was included in part of our Responsive reading from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses is speaking to the children of Israel in verse 11 when he says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us? In other words, Moses was saying, You know what? The word of God has been brought to you, and you don't have to go to heaven and ask for the, the word of God because it's here. Nor do you have to go beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? In other words, as Moses was writing these words, he's looking back at the sea that they had crossed over on dry land. He said, you don't have to go back over there and try to figure out where the word of God is. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart because it's been given to you. Now this is a figure of speech that Paul is, is borrowing from. He says, just in the sense in which it was not possible for the children of Israel to go back into heaven after Moses had already received the law on Mount Sinai, to go back into heaven and say, okay, God, where's your rules? How, how do we obtain righteousness? Just as it was impossible for them to do that, it's impossible for us to look at Jesus Christ and say, okay, now, Jesus, now bring us some righteousness. Because it's already near. It's in Christ. It's not in the law. It's in Christ. Nor would we go 
into the abyss. Look at a crucified Savior and raise Him from the dead. That's impossible. We can't do that. And it's just as impossible for the human being born in sin with the wrath of God resting upon him or her to somehow in their own effort say, God, all right, I'm ready to get saved now. Now where's your righteousness at? Or say, you know what? What I really need is the power to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. So where's he at? Let me go dig him up. We can't do that. That's Paul's point. You can't save yourself. You can't do what's required. For you need God who's perfect to come to you. And you need Jesus who died for your sins to be raised from the dead to have faith. And you can't do it. The good news is you don't have to. It's near. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. What does Paul go on to say here? Let's say the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because, oh boy, we, we've heard a, a bunch of therefores and a bunch of fours and why this and why that. Paul's got a really good because. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be come on, y'all can do better than that. I know this is not a Pentecostal church. I know this is a Reformed Baptist church. I get it. Even within the Southern Baptist Convention. But you can do better than that. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. It's not because you went to heaven and told God you were ready. Seeking after righteousness. God, can you send some righteousness down? I'm, I'm ready. Or, you know what? Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins, but you know what? I need a living Savior, so let me just help you out a little bit. No. Those two very, very vital and important things are near, and they're as close as the words in our mouth and the faith that's in our heart because of God's grace. Now this idea of believing is a really tricky thing. It's interesting if you go back that the Reformers in response to the Roman Catholic Church, you know, justification of faith became penalty. Understanding that you can't work your way through the sacraments. You can't work your way through all these rules and regulations. You can't buy your way into heaven. And so their response to that by the grace of God and by the movement of the Holy Spirit in, their, in, in, in the world moves away from that to the point where the Roman Catholic Church thought that the Reformers were proposing some sort of easy believism. That's, that's really ironic today because we have seen a resurgence within Reformed faith to an easy believism. Because all we do is say, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, the Reformers understood that they needed to not only be able to defend their position before the Roman Catholic Church to show themselves biblical, 
But today, we also see ourselves in need of making it clear what do we mean by believe, and I'm going to borrow from them. I'm not going to use, well, actually, I'm going to tell you the Latin words, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. If you know Latin, then you may be ahead of the curve here, but for those of us who don't, first of all, notitia is regarding the content of our message. There must be a belief that there is a message. We must believe that there is some presentation of truth. We must believe that there is a record that there was a man called Jesus who came from the Father and died for our sins after living a perfect sinless life so that we might be forgiven and redeemed and bought out of the slave market of sin and through his resurrection from the dead, we might be given the newness of life. There must be content, if you will, of our belief. But the demons believe that. In fact, they know that. They would even go so far as the census or the conviction that that's true. It's not a matter that that's a presentation that that happened, but there's actually I assent to it mentally. That what the gospel says, I get it. It's the gospel. I assent to it. I believe that it that's true. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe he wasn't a liar. I believe he died on a cross. I believe he was raised from the dead. That's ascension of our minds, making assent. Demons got that and covered too. What makes a difference? It's the last one, the fiducia. We get the idea of fidelity or the idea of commitment. In other words, now I'm not going to be like the city of New York and try to curb your behavior through the consumption of sugary beverages. You can be like I was at one time in my life, and Amy, my wonderful wife, has kind of brought me out of that lifestyle. Not that I'm being judgmental towards anybody who's still suffering through that. I mean, uh, that is actually you know, putting themselves through that misery. But there would, be, there would be a day that hardly would go by that I would not consume at least one 12-ounce can of Coke or Sprite or something like that, real sugary stuff. Now, I could believe according to the medical reports and to the dietitians, or just take the word from my wife because she never guides me or misleads me in anything. I could just take her word for it. And she said, you know what? You really should stop drinking all that stuff. And if you get rid of it all together, it'd be good. And start drinking water. Well, that sounds boring. But you know what? Even as a human being, I could see sort of the, the rationale behind that because water is actually, it's basic. It's, it's something that the body needs. It's something, I mean, most of our body is made up of water, by the way. Uh, and so it needs it. I get it. There's some benefit to it. It keeps, my, it keeps the organs, you know, functioning properly. It, uh, it helps replenish things in, in, in the skin all the way down inside. I mean, it, there's some value to it. And I can sit back and say, you know what, I, I believe that's true. I believe that there's people who believe that water is good for you. And if that you consume more of that than you do anything else... Now, again, I'm not saying about coffee. I know that would be really then dangerous in my life here if I was to start challenging on coffee. But at least we can get to the point, down to the basic points, water is good. I get it. Doctors love it. 
Dietitians prescribe it. I, I, I understand it. And I could even get to the point where I'm saying, you know what, I really believe if I change my life to the point where that's what I was consuming more than anything else, beverage-wise, there would actually be a benefit to me. It would actually enhance my life. It might actually provide some better health. But it's only when I stopped looking in the advertisements to see who had the cheapest 12-pack, whether it be CVS or Lowe's Foods or somewhere else where we could you know, stock up and get like two or three of those big boys and sit them in the refrigerator so that whenever I was thirsty, I would go and grab one. It's not until I stopped doing that and actually started putting my glass under the water filter dispenser on the refrigerator and using that that I really commit to it, right? I could stand up here and say, you know what? I lost 10 pounds like in the first two weeks of doing that. I could stand up here and say, you know what? My health has been so much vigorous ever since I did that. I have so much more energy. I think more clearly. I, I sleep better at night. I live better. I can't really do that because there's so many other elements to my life that are holding me back from that. But my point is that I could say all that all I wanted, but if I don't do it. A better example of that is uh, some of you are familiar with the name Dave Ramsey. <laughs> Dave Ramsey is a very wise person in my opinion. He has lost basically everything that he had financially and materialistically, went bankrupt, literally, and worked his way back to the point where not only is he a millionaire, but he is giving out wisdom and, and knowledge to people who need it to learn how to do it. And I can listen to his program. I can listen to it all day long to him talking to other people about their problems. I can believe that everything that he's saying is true. And I can believe, you know what, everybody, people need to listen to him. As a matter of fact, people that come to work with me with financial problems say, you know, if you ever heard about this financial peace thing or, you know, the, you know how to get out of debt, uh, you need to read this book. I need to keep my mouth shut until I start reading his book and start doing the things that he says before I, you know, you know what I'm saying? Because I haven't committed myself to it unless I'm doing what he says. It's one thing when you say, Pastor Charlie, you need to read Dave Ramsey's book. Yeah, I've heard you talk about what, you know, you've been begging for this and that. You know, if you just get, if you just read this book, this book will really help you. I believe it will help you. Brother Mark, did you, did you read that book? How did it help you? Well, I, I, I read it. I think it's really good, but I, I don't need to do that. And that's where our world's at. You know that church thing? That, that's actually, I, I, I see your behavior. I really, you were somebody that I really respect. The way you handle problems at work and the way you deal with people who are giving you a hard time. Boy, I really, that Christianity, Christianity thing, boy, that's really, really good. And I see that it could be really beneficial to people. It's just not for me. Or, that's really cool. That's the way you do it. But this is the way I found it works for me. I'm a Christian. I just don't need to go to church all the time. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, but I don't need the fellowship of other saints. I don't need to be a part of the church. You know, you're good with your Bible study and all that kind of stuff. You spend so much time studying scriptures and praying. But you know what? I really I don't find that, that I need to pray that much, just in, in hard times. I, I, I really don't need to, to, to give to the church because the Lord knows my heart, and He knows that I need to take care of my family, which is important. I need to pay my bills, which is important. 
But you know, at the end of a long week, I really need to just kind of get away. And, and sometimes it's just expensive. If you, if you know the cost of airfare and if it's a cost to stay in a resort and a place where I really need to just kind of sit back and relax, I need those things. But we also know where your faith is at. It's in your ability to kind of work through. And since I didn't go to church last week, I'll just volunteer at the rescue mission this week. God will see that as kind of even, right? I didn't read my Bible last week. As a matter of fact, I started out uh, reading it uh, the other day, and I just fell asleep, before, you know, taking a nap in the break room with all the TV and everybody talking around me. Uh, but you know what? I'm going to make up for that. I'll go to church, and I'll write out a big check this time. And we do so much rationalization of how we are going to earn righteousness when it is right here. I need to quickly move on. Who or how then? How then will they call on him, verse 14, in whom they have not believed? How do you get to that point? How do you get to commitment? Not just to, to understanding that there's something to believe. Not just believing that what is, is to believe is true. How do I get to true belief where I'm committing myself to it? Well, how then will they call on him in whom, in whom, and not, it's not in what, but in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Is it a beautiful thing? So we live in a culture where we really don't think about people's feet as being beautiful. Now we might notice some ugly feet from time to time if you go on the beach or uh, maybe you're at the gym or something. You might see something that's not beautiful. But when we think about beautiful feet, we need to understand that he's talking about the means in which the Word of God is going. It is moving. It's not staying behind the pulpit. It's not sitting behind the lectern. It's not sitting in my quiet time. But beautiful are the ones who are carrying the feet, or the feet that are carrying the gospel. Because that is how they're going to hear. And that is how they're going to believe. And that is how they're going to call upon Him. But let's not overlook what Paul says. How are they to preach unless they are what? Unless they're sent. That tells us what? That there's a sender. Jesus told his disciples to go out into and reap a harvest. He didn't go out there. He didn't say, go save a harvest. But he said, go be reapers. Pray for the reapers. He sends us to go so that they might hear and believe and call on him. So faith comes from hearing. In hearing through the Word of Christ. If you don't get anything else, which is going to be unfortunate because I spent so much time on everything else, 
But if this is the only thing that you get, understand this. That salvation is not going to come in any other way than through the Word of Christ. That's it. Doesn't mean you have to be listening to someone preach from a pulpit. It doesn't mean you need to be on the sidewalk when somebody's out preaching to the to masses. But you, I, and everyone else who knows Jesus Christ as our Savior and calls upon His name for salvation will do so because they have heard the Word of Christ. Not because they saw somebody, a good example. Not because they were inspired by some movie or book. Because they heard the Word. The Word of Christ. And you can take that either way. You can say the Word about Christ or the words from Christ. They match up. They're the same. That's the reason why it is so important that we preach the Word. Now Paul closes by saying, but I ask, have they not heard? Who's he talking about? The ones who he's speaking about in Romans chapter 9. The people of God. Israel. The Jewish people. Haven't they heard? Indeed they have for their voice, their voice being the voice of the prophets, have gone to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Isaiah is so bold to say, I have found, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But Israel says, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Again, our CGG lesson this morning. How many times did God warn them? Have my people not heard? Have my people not heard? Have my people not heard? Absolutely they've heard. I've had my arms stretched out for centuries. They've heard. Now, does that mean God's finished with them? There's a chapter 11. It's good. It answers that question. And to your benefit, I will not go into it today. But that's next. But what I'd like for you to do in closing is because as leaders of the church, we are always interested. We did us, we took the summer off and we looked through evangelism and discipleship through our CGG lessons. We try to give you tools and resources and try to encourage you to witness and whether it be who's your one or whatever it is, there's different ways that which you can get the word because there's no other way. Just say the word. You may have heard me talk about a woman who died because of a blood clot in her foot. There's a book out in front, and by the way, each of these, there's enough for every household. There's not enough for every individual. It's close, but every household, I would like for you to pick up one of these. It's called Don't Stub Your Toe. What I challenge you to do is read it yourself. Love the message of the book and then give it to somebody else. 
what time is purple? You say, <laughs> Mark, you, you asked the question wrong. Purple's not a color. Actually, see, I got y'all there because actually it is a color. Time is not a color. But we live in a world in which you deal with people who don't deal with objective truth. You deal in a world that is all relative. I encourage you to pick up one of these for household, read it, give it to somebody who thinks like this book is written for. There's one here. Are you a rotten fish? It's kind of an insulting question. Are you a rotten fish? I want you to read this book, realize that you are a rotten fish, and then give it to another rotten fish. And then Pastor Charlie was even giving uh, the past these long, as far as the three circles, his life conversation guide. I'm not sure if he has any more copies of these, but I can assure you, I feel like a gospel artist. There's CDs out front for $9.99. Um, please understand that the wrath of God is resting upon this world so much that whether you use this book which has the word in it or whether you share the word directly from God's word yourself engage how they should they call on the one of whom they have not heard and how shall they hear if no one preaches We've already been sent. Can I leave that one alone? But are we proclaiming? Are they hearing? And are they calling? Father, you've been so gracious to us. I thank you as much as my feeble heart can muster thanks for your grace that has opened my eyes to your wonderful law. You've shown me the beauty of it. But you've also placed a rock that kept me from thinking that somehow I could do enough to obtain your righteousness, which is so desperately needed. And by your grace, I found safety in that rock. By your grace, I will not be ashamed because I stand not in my own strength. I stand not in my own works. My accomplishments, Lord, I stand as we sang earlier today. It's here in the death, in the life of Christ that I stand. It's in Christ alone. Father, I pray that as your word has gone forth today, that it would find receptive hearts. I pray that you would continue to open ears so that we might hear. I pray that you would continue to open eyes that we might see. And I pray that you would give us hearts of flesh. That as you write your law upon it, and as you convince us in our minds of your truth, that we would submit. That we would not seek a righteousness of our own any longer. That we would pursue the righteousness that is found completely in Jesus Christ. Father, may He be our joy 
our strength, our righteousness, our peace, our hope, our life. Help us, Father, now as we take your word with us into a world that's lost. Help us, Lord, to be obedient to your call to go into a land of harvest. Of those who you have already called, to those who will hear, to those you have saved. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.